listening to the sixth episode of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. As in season one, this podcast goes into a strict Christian upbringing and traditional isolationist church climate not working out, but it is not an attack on faith. In fact, it's mainly about trying to retain some connection to God, despite everything and everyone. It's also about depression and words and music. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song for my unreleased follow-up concept album, Peter Gray Grows Up. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 6, Killer Qualms from Inner Space. Most of my brethren cohort either didn't break the rules at all or broke them in secret long before they decided they were wrong if in fact they ever decided that. I was odd. I always tried to question the sense and consistency of the rules rather than simply evading the people likely to punish me for breaking them. As I've said in past podcasts, that wasn't the deal. The deal is that, of course, you can always choose to break the rules, and really there aren't any rules at all to begin with, so there's nothing to break in the first place. But if you don't keep those rules, we all know what kind of person you are then, A not serious Christian, a tourist, a weak person who can't suppress their old nature, a non-spiritual, foolish, fun-pursuing, worldly person at heart, a foolish Eskimo who is feeding the wrong sled dog. Got it. You don't have to follow the rules, and there aren't any, but you can't break them. This is literally what I was told repeatedly by the older folks. Don't have rules to keep, can't break them, though. I checked. At age 25, I wrote up the Brethren lifestyle restrictions as I understood them, as none of us had ever seen any of it written down, yet it weighed so heavily upon us and limited our lives so much. No movies or television, no going out to public entertainment of any kind, in fact. No missing meetings, except in cases of illness. No leisure activities on Sundays, as Sunday is properly referred to and enacted each week as the Lord's Day. I mailed a copy of my rules to leading elders in a large number of brethren assemblies asking what they thought. I got a surprising number of responses. Naturally, no one I actually knew bothered to respond. They knew what I was up to and wanted no part of it. But a lot of earnest, sincere old guys sent letters, in one case on a cassette tape I can't find right now. They were all in agreement. Really, pleasing God isn't about following rules. It isn't. And there aren't any rules because we in the meeting are free. We don't have any rules that we have to follow. We are, after all, not Catholics or Jews. But these rules that I'd written up, these were a mighty fine-looking, wise set of rules. Now, to be clear, we certainly did not have to keep rules like this, but yes, if we broke them, this would be a pretty clear indication of a life lived for self rather than going on to please the Lord. Very serious indeed. We knew how things were supposed to work. So, you got drunk, and you feel horribly guilty about that. Well... How many sins led you onto that path? Had you been reading your Bible and praying much that week? You hadn't. There's the cause right there. Had you attended meeting? No. That's all it takes. But wait, you did read your Bible, pray, and go to meeting? And you still got drunk. You're not lying right now, are you? That's not how that's supposed to work. How on earth could you have had the shameless gall to sit right there in meeting, knowing all the while that you were planning on drinking alcohol later? How could you pray to God with him and you knowing what you had in mind? That was not how the thing was supposed to work. But it didn't work. 
Not for me, anyway. I wasn't having any of that. I went off to university knowing I didn't really believe going to a movie theater, which I really wanted to do, or go see bands live, which I really, really wanted to do, or having a beer, buying a lottery ticket, or voting, all of which I didn't much care one way or the other, were actually bad things or wrong things to do in the eyes of God. I firmly believed he didn't have a problem with them, done wisely, but that I'd been programmed to be literally unable to do them without feeling a deep sense of shame. And that programming was formative, meaning those buttons, those switches, filters, and subroutines had been put in place while my intellect and personality were forming. They had a part in how I formed. They formed me. I'm not saying anyone planned to program us this way so much as it was a system that people wanted to work like that and didn't want to maintain or think about. The power of group shaming and peer pressure and group shunning is primal and deep. It works. You don't need to think about it to make it work either. Mostly, you just have to not object to it while it goes on. There is something ancient and tribal and therefore powerful about othering people for demonstrating various tribal markers of outsider status, like going to the movies. So my head said it would in theory be okay to go see the latest Star Trek movie at the theater, but I knew I would have to go against feelings of deep shame and anxiety to do that. So I did something most other young people didn't. I waited. Mark Vetter went out of his way to be quotable all the time, and one of the things he said was that if you think something's wrong, no matter if it is or not, if you do it anyway, you do damage to yourself. Jesus said that a house divided against itself will not surely stand, that it would be divided, would be split down the middle, and not structurally sound. This is another way of saying it wouldn't have integrity. So I wanted to have integrity in both senses, acting consistently with my beliefs and also hang strongly together as a personality. I wanted freedom, liberty to do things I knew to be relatively harmless, if not downright good for me. But I didn't want to do anything before I was ready to do it. Before, my place at the Lord's table, my ability to move among the gathered saints and attend things and expect to be accepted as a right-living one of their number, had meant more to me than the liberty to go to the movie theater or have a beer. But that started to mean less and less. Increasingly, my church had treated a large number of people I'd grown up with in ways that led me to believe these folks weren't worth placating. I was still terrified to be entirely kicked out for life and shunned globally, but I was tired of the contradictions and special cases for special people. They made exceptions to treat people especially bad or especially good. I was going to do what I thought was right, including walk in Christian liberty, my relationship with God being between him and I, rather than getting vetted by them first, and if they had a problem with it, or him, or me, I wasn't content to let them talk behind my back and treat me like a religious imposter or a bad person. No, I was going to make them have an actual discussion about it with me, Bibles out. And I was in my 20s now, and felt like I was a grown-up. Albert Hayhoe, I would have felt horrible disappointing. But he was long dead. Charles Hayhoe? Charles, I could handle disappointing. And I was starting to view the level of lifestyle limiting the brethren were doing to all of us and the deep indoctrination that programmed it into our brains as a force of actual evil rather than anything justifiable with scripture. But that indoctrination hadn't quite worn off sufficiently, and I wanted to do things right. So I waited. I didn't wait forever, and I didn't wait until not a hint of entrained shame was left. I waited until I felt good and ready to face it and know what was going on when I was ready for the repercussions, when I was ready not to hide or lie or be embarrassed about any of it. 
I waited until I wasn't just a child disobeying his parents or away from them at university for the first time and succumbing to peer pressure there. I waited until I was doing it myself, by myself, for my own reasons, having prayed about it, knowing what the Bible said. I left university having never tried a beer or dated an unbelieving worldly person or gone to the movies. As to seeing live music, though, something interesting happened. I was very into a Canadian band called the Northern Pikes, who had a big novelty song called She Ain't Pretty. So, uh, I call her up, her father was home. Said she's busy, she can't come to the phone. I held my breath and decided to wait. A guy like me doesn't give me any dates. But the Pikes were more about writing beautiful, simple, sad songs that said depressing, horribly dark things with humor. Oh, just wait until you're dead. We'll see just how big you were. You wouldn't know Columbus, Rembrandt, or a Mozart. You thought you were such big stuff. Who are you? You're unimportant, unimportant, so unimportant. People who don't experience suicidal ideation don't understand how refreshing it is to sometimes look right into that deep black well and be able to laugh at it and go for a walk in a sunlit meadow instead of throwing oneself right in. To bastardize Nietzsche, sometimes when the abyss laughs mockingly in your face, you laugh right back at it. Well, in my last year of university, the Northern Pikes were playing on the school lawn for $5, two blocks from my room, the very day I saw the poster. This was very tempting, and no one would have known. No one but God and I. I could have always done it, and lied about it, and hid it from everyone. The decision was kind of made for me that I was working that evening but I've been listening to their albums for years, especially the latest one, which had kind of gotten me through the deathly cold of Canadian winter, playing on my headphones as I took the bus to work in the shopping mall at ridiculous hours of day and night. But I walked past Tabaret Hall on the front lawn and saw their stage being set up. So I walked by a bit later and saw the actual band show up for sound check. So I didn't ever hear the Northern Pikes perform their show live on their Snow in June tour, but I watched them do sound check. I was amazed at how the amplified kick drum, slapping back from the cathedral across the street, could be solidly but comfortably felt right in the chest, like it was gonna put one's heart in sync with the tempo of the song. Just about three years later, I would stand in a hockey arena in Hull, Quebec, and hear Meatloaf sing. know exactly what Jim Steinman meant. But back to the Northern Pike soundcheck. Drums were thoroughly beaten, guitars and basses fiddled with, random things said and sung into the mics, 
and I was wrapped with attention the whole time, trying to figure out the gear, connecting the figures not far away from me on stage with the sounds they had contributed to the catalog of Northern Pike songs playing in my head. And when their sound check was over, the band took off pretty quickly, apart from my favorite songwriter of the group, Jay Semko, who hung around to talk to fans. Jay is probably the patient, quiet, friendly one of the group. I waited patiently, behind screaming, hugging, picture-snapping girls and guys saying the Pikes totally rocked and that they had a band too. I did not have a band too. Jay is a bit shy and quiet, so when I spoke to him last in line, we didn't quite know what to say to one another. We said a couple of random things about the new album, and I went on my way, positively walking on clouds. And I hadn't gone and seen live music at a concert, or entered a drinking establishment, or concert venue, or bought a ticket, or anything punishable by the church like that. I just walked across the quad of my school in late afternoon and had a casual conversation with a guy a guy who was heard singing on the radio all day long. Many years later, I was standing where the ice normally goes in a hockey rink in Napanee, Ontario, birthplace of Avril Lavigne, the town, not the hockey rink, talking with the members of the Northern Pikes for maybe the fourth time since they had largely fallen out of the public eye. Jay asked lead guitarist Brian Potvin, Bry, you remember Mike, the guy whose church didn't let him go to rock and roll shows when he was at university, so he came to see our sound check back in the day? Brian said, yeah, good to see you again, buddy. I told him, I've seen you guys play quite a few times since then, though. And you went to hell, Brian said, grinning like the rock star he is. Not quite. It was just a hockey rink in Napanee. When I was 21 and had graduated university, I felt ready to break those rules, which all brethren people agreed were certainly not rules at all, as there were, of course, no rules. What did you take us for, a church? All the rules I broke, I broke once I didn't believe in them anymore, and while the global church division was underway. I didn't plan it that way, but the divine ground of gathering the brethren insisted upon being seen to be our gathered upon had a big chasm ripped right through the middle of it suddenly. And as that happened, I took it less seriously. The claims, the authority figures, my status there, the rules as well. When the group was starting to divide, I was already starting to meticulously break its rules very systematically. The first thing I did was go see another musical inspiration, folk singer John Gorka, playing a small auditorium in Ottawa. I'd seen him on Curry's TV and been amazed at how he dressed exactly like me, had a beard like mine, and played quiet acoustic guitar like mine and sang in a quiet baritone voice songs that were funny, songs that were dark, and many that were both. I'm from New Jersey. It's not like Texas, no, there is no mystery, I can't pretend, I'm from New Jersey, it's like Ohio, but even more so, imagine that. It was amazing. He was like me, except a lot better. Maybe one day I could be a bit like him. Seeing him play a show was amazing. I quickly found out that it was next to impossible for me to remain in a depressive state while sitting in a room while a musician I liked played music for me not far from me. I didn't feel it was wrong to have gone either, but was extremely aware that my status among the brethren would plummet if I didn't manage to keep this indulgence secret. But part of the deal was that I wasn't going to. I bought some John Gorka cassettes from the Ottawa Folklore Center and played one for my disapproving cousins after the show. I will learn all languages, I will speak in every tongue. 
From highnesses to savages to all beneath the sun. No, you won't, my cousin said disapprovingly to the recorded voice of the Pennsylvania-based folk singer. I've spoken with John Gorka several times since, and we've connected on social media, but I've never quite known how to share this cousinly criticism of his lyrics with John. I thought it was hilarious at the time, though. Not everyone has the soul of a poet. This transparency about what I was doing made me not a rebel who could get caught breaking the rules and shamed for pretending to be better than that, but someone who was outgrowing the rules and seeing through them. Many people at my church my age and slightly younger were forbidden to speak to me at all from this point on. Many wanted to get rides with me to youth group functions because I might play worldly music on my tape deck, so after that happened a time or two, ACDC being requested when I had John Gorka on, a couple of them were forbidden outright. I was told I wasn't welcome at youth group events at all. I'm sure if someone had told everyone that I was handing out free heroin to children in my car, people would have believed this. I may have been a full member allowed to take communion Sunday mornings, but for years I was shunned unofficially as a doctrinal and attitudinal contagion. I told the one guy in charge of the upcoming youth weekend upon being told that I couldn't come that if he wanted to try to have higher standards for his dinner table than we had for the Lord's own table, making it a more exclusive thing to eat supper at his house than to eat the Lord's supper in our exclusive brethren group as we had just done that morning together, that this was his own lookout. I was only a twenty-something kid at this point, but I made him burst into tears at this. I stood there and watched him sobbing. Turns out, in retrospect, that wasn't actually very hard to do. It started to happen with him more and more as the division wore on. So I had my own young people's weekend a couple of summers later. The locals boycotted it mostly. Lots of people came from out of town. We played paintball and were warned by family and the gathered saints that there was to be no Bible study or scripture discussion allowed. What was a young people's weekend without Bible study? I secretly tried to have a Bible discussion after paintball anyway. I got caught in that guilty secret. Someone told on me. I've never been forgiven. I checked years later. My grandfather told me that he knew what I'd done, and when it came to the Bible, I needed to learn to keep my mouth shut because I didn't know a damn thing. But back in 1991, the year of the division, I worked at Homers for the Handicapped by this time, and Leslie, a tall, leggy blonde staffer my age, also waitressed at Big's Deli on Merivale in Ottawa. I showed up when she was on shift, and at age 21, had a Montreal smoked meat sandwich on rye, and asked Leslie, wearing the little shorts and uniform t-shirt with suggestive meat-related puns on it, to recommend a beer for me. She gave me a Budweiser. I thought it tasted like a skunk-flavored lemon. I don't like lemon. I drank the whole thing very slowly, though Leslie told me there was no rule that said I had to. I quickly decided that most people talk about liking the taste of various alcohols, but mostly they're looking for the warm glow going down their throat and belly that comes with alcohol. A warm glow I'd experienced most Sunday mornings since I started taking a swallow of powerful communion wine each week from age 12 on. Now, if the Lord's things found out about the Budweiser, they would want to forbid me from taking communion on Sunday. And I wasn't going to hide it. Noted, a single bottle of beer Saturday evening was absolutely verboten, but a swallow from a glass of highly potent wine 12 hours later at church was a sign of a special godliness, a supernatural privilege very subject to removal if you didn't play ball with them just how they wanted you to. It was almost as if the rules didn't exactly make a lot of sense, no matter how you parse them. 
What was Jesus' first miracle again? Oh, yeah, turning jugs of water into wine so people at a wedding could drink more. I didn't think getting drunk was good. My maternal grandfather had reportedly been an alcoholic, though we never met him. There was alcoholism in the families of a few of my school friends, and it sounded like hell on earth. But the prediction of the church folk that if I drank any alcohol outside of Sunday morning breaking of bread proceedings, I'd quickly become an alcoholic, manifestly has not ever come true. I'm far too much of a control freak for that. But to the brethren, this made me even more of a bad example to their kids. How irresponsible of me to model alcoholism for the young like that. I was like a walking billboard at meeting, saying that people could drink alcohol and not necessarily become alcoholics. Soon everyone would be drinking alcohol. I was supposed to go to the movies and see The Doors starring Val Kilmer as my first movie at a theater. I was supposed to go with Pete, my boarding house roommate from first year university, and Ray, a guy I worked at Radio Shack in the mall with. But I soon learned, planning my first outing, that when you try to arrange seeing a movie with other people, plans tend to fall through. It wasn't like renting a movie from Blockbuster. To this day, I generally just go by myself. I don't have a month to wait while people arrange babysitters and convince their wives that the movie's not dumb. So I went and saw Star Trek VI, the last one with the original cast, and I loved it. Filled with terror, I'd be seen going in, but doing it anyway. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. I didn't lie about it, but I did go to a theater pretty far away. It felt like I got in just under the wire and managed to catch the last real Star Trek movie at the theater. In retrospect, I was right. None of the cast had died yet. I'd seen the previous Star Trek movies on VHS after reading their novelizations, and sitting in the theater in Gloucester, was very aware that I suddenly had no remote control to change volume, pause the movie and leave the room, rewind good bits, or stop the movie to watch later. Also, people talked to each other, the screen, and themselves, loudly. 30 or 40 of them at least. Some were very fat and poorly groomed, wore sweatpants and two small t-shirts, and wanted everyone to know they weren't missing a single in-joke or callback to the earlier films. They were like, ha ha ha, I understood that joke, you tell them, Spock. And they ate and drank drinks just as loudly, and some of them smelled really bad. There was no mute for them either, nor eject. My cousins were eager to rent Star Trek VI when it finally came out on video so they could watch it. We had pretty much memorized Weird Al Yankovic's UHF and the Naked Gun and Airplane movies by that point when we rented them. When I said I would rent Star Trek VI for them, but I had already seen it, they could guess how I'd already seen it and strongly disapproved, wondered how I expected to be taken seriously at meeting as anything other than a tourist, a pretender to my seat among the gathered saints. They also disputed my claims that our group was undergoing a worldwide division. Mom, we're not having a worldwide division, are we? My teenage cousin yelled to his mom while on the phone with me, hinting that my life was not any more what it should have been. No, we're not having a worldwide division, honey. She told him. She says we're not having one, he told me. One of my cousins accompanied me to a brother's meeting right before the division fully happened. A brother's meeting is a males-only administrative meeting of the church leaders held monthly that we were, technically being male, and members allowed to sit in on. I was talking with my teenage cousin afterward about all the passive-aggressive slights, hints, and jabs in play during it, and he, being very literal-minded, said, 
They didn't say any of that. And just like he'd been about John Gorka not learning all languages, he was right from a certain point of view. They had very carefully communicated it all without quite undeniably saying it outright. But the division, as Mother said wasn't going to happen, was unfolding. And then suddenly, it had happened, all around us, all across the world. And where did Tokyo, Japan stand on Nepean, Ontario, Canada? Bombay, India? Barranquilla, Ecuador? People we'd spent our entire lives staring at for an hour five times a week at meeting left our lives, and in many cases, we never saw them again, though they lived a block away. I wrote a song thinking of a bad 50s B-movie with a giant monster rampaging through a town, stamping on things it apparently hated for no particular reason. Movie theaters, pool halls, arcades, because that's how the brethren and their secret denied rules had started to look to me, a big monster baby having a monster temper tantrum throughout the town. The hero of the song is not Peter, but Will, named in a very literal John Bunyan way, because that was the only way I ever got free. Having the willpower not to break rules I didn't feel ready to break, having the courage to break them once I'd rejected them for good on a deep level, having the willpower to break them in a way and a time I felt comfortable breaking them. I broke the rules thoughtfully and carefully, purposefully and prayerfully, in my own way and time, and then I worked to banish all shame and sneaking around about it. I decided that secrets and privacy were almost opposites. If someone learned something about you and they got angry and you felt ashamed, that was a secret and you'd gotten caught keeping it. It might even have been a secret Bible discussion. If someone learned something about you though and you got angry about their prying and they felt ashamed for trying to pry and judge you, then that was privacy and they'd gotten caught infringing it. Privacy, something in very short supply among the Lord's people, and I was determined to get used to finally having some. I didn't care if it required 40 years alone in the wilderness. This is a lyric I wrote long ago and could never settle on an arrangement for. I had nothing but a basic tune together. So last summer, in the heart of COVID, I just made one entirely by myself. Surf drum loop from YouTube. An attempt to half-heartedly imitate the criminologist guy with the desk and globe in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's true also that the spare tire they were carrying was badly in need of some air. Masking my trick of reading part of the song out loud instead of singing it to make the song proper shorter when it has too many verses and you don't want to dump any. A reuse of the crying baby monster sound effect. <laughs> because that's what I thought the in-trained shame etched into all of our psyches might sound like. Because that's what I thought the guys having the division while threatening to kick people out for being young and having harmless fun sounded like. Giant, terrified, misshapen infants having global temper tantrums for no good reason and demanding to be taken extremely seriously and given everything they wanted now. was locked away for 20 years, far from the outside world. Then blinking, it emerged to a full moon brightest day. From a laboratory filled with mutated church attenders, it went out on the town, and then there was hell to pay. 
Fully 50 feet it stood, with eyes of orange fire. It was shaped like a big turnip, and its smell was beyond rank. Its skin was gray and lumpy, yet it claimed to be quite sensitive, though it stood up very nicely to bazookas, planes, and tanks. Crushed a black like disco deck of pool hall and arcade. It stepped on 14 cinemas and a corner comic store. It smashed a video rental place in my friend Curry's weekly D&D. It rampaged for a week and it seemed to want some more. It was a giant killer conscience. It was not of this world. When the thing attacked, there was no safe place to hide. When no one was looking, it got out and went to war. It chewed up little children, ate their brains and their insides. It was then our hero Will stepped up, he blocked the monster's path. We thought in a few seconds we would see him crushed and dead. Daddy stood with Mr. Gaze and arms all akimbo. You can't feel good things out of shame, is what this brave man said. It was a giant killer conscience, it was not of this world. When the thing attacked, there was no safe place to hide. When no one was looking, it got and went to Walking with God if you're going in a path of disobedience. The monster hung his head, defeated and in pain. He trudged into the night and left the people free of war. Then Will went back to work and no one even got his name. And no one heard of him or the monster anymore. It was a giant killing conscience. It was this world, a thing that will attack, leaving no safe place to hide. When no one is looking, it got out and went to war. Shoot the little children in the brains and their insides. There are many lives all over Christendom. Filled with men and women who are toiling night and day To build themselves a new and vulnerable vessel To fill brim high with guilt and shame and send it out to fight To be a giant killer conscience that is not of this world Thing that will attack, leaving no safe place to hide. When no one is looking, it will go on out to war and torment little children, eat their brains and their insides.